Could you please take out your Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2? A little history on Thessalonica. Paul founded the Thessalonian church on his second missionary journey at around A.D. 50, A.D. 51. Thessalonica is located, was located in the Roman province of Macedonia, which we now know as northern Greece. 1 Thessalonians may have been the earliest written work in the New Testament, second to James. It was important because when Paul founded the Thessalonian church, all they had was the Old Testament, possibly James's letter. Later on, they had First and First and Second Thessalonians from Paul, but pretty much the teachings of Jesus had to come through direct eyewitness accounts, as Paul himself. Chapter one in in First Thessalonians tells us that Paul commends the church for the growth and being a good example in all of Greece. Chapter 2 reminds the Thessalonians, Paul reminds them how he, Silas, and Timothy behaved among them and set examples to facilitate them coming to the Lord and growing in the Lord. In chapter 3, Paul talks of wanting to know what their progress is, how they're doing. Uh, you know, they, we, they didn't have the, uh, the camera cell phones that we have today. So uh, when, when he left, he uh, wanted to know how they were doing. They were an infant church. So he, he t- sends Timothy over there, and then in chapter 3, he gets a good report back from Timothy. In the study Bible, it says under chapter 2, Paul's founding of the church. But we'll find in this section that he gives us 11 great principles of ministry that we can learn from. For the believer and those in ministry, it's great. It's very apropos to where we are today in Calvary Chapel Cross Fields. It gives us direction into ministry. For the unbeliever looking to call a church home, he knows what to look for by reading the scripture. If he sees the opposite of what Paul says, he needs to run away. Like Finding Nemo, swim away. Come on, don't tell me I'm the only one who saw Finding Nemo. Okay, I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. For our exhortation did not come from deceit or uncleanness, nor was it in guile. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is witness." Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil, for laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children, that you would have a walk worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom, his own kingdom and glory. Okay. So the first verse he tells us, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you is not in vain. And they talked about how they were treated in Philippi. Planting this church, going to Thessalonica was not a waste of time. Instead of dying out, the church flourished and people got saved. But 
It didn't come without a price. Those of you that remember Acts 16, prior to coming to Thessalonica, Paul, Silas, and Timothy went to Philippi. They made their route around northern Greece and then came down to southern Greece. Okay? So what happened at that point was they were preaching the gospel, and uh, there was a girl with a spirit, a, you know, a spirit of divination. And through the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, they cast out that spirit. Well, apparently this girl made a lot of money for her master by divination. So now that the spirit is gone, the cash cow is gone. So Paul and Silas were severely beaten and put in prison. It was a satanic attempt to stifle the gospel, but it failed. God freed them, and then they continued to Thessalonica to plant a church. So, principle number one, bring the lost to salvation no matter what the cost. What's the cost here? People make fun of you. They call you a Bible thumper or, you know, some silly names. Well, the cost to our brothers and sisters in Africa, in Islamic countries, in a communist country, is the cost of their life. In Sudan, the planes fly over and they just bomb, you know, they bomb villages, they bomb churches. A lot of bad things happen to Christians in these nations, but they still uh, stand fast. Imagine what the world would be like if the church, churches just followed this first principle, to preach the gospel, to save the lost, no matter what the cost. No flashy pastors with Rolexes and living in mansions. No celebrity pastors who are not in touch with the people. Churches wouldn't be about money. Imagine the change in the world if the churches followed this one principle. Verse 3, for our exhortation did not come from deceit or uncleanness, nor was it in guile. Paul and crew gave the straight gospel without trying to get something in return. Principle number two, no ulterior motives. The church is responsible to minister to its congregates. JFK had a, a famous speech, and in the speech he said, I won't do the impersonation because I can't do Boston accents, but he said, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. God help us if the church ever takes that motto. It should be the other way around. But people will leave the church if they feel that they're not loved or if the church is trying to get something from them. I've been a Christian for nine years, and the biggest complaint I hear from people in all many types of churches who have left and don't go to church anymore is they just want my money. People think that they're just a wallet to the church, and that's not the way it's supposed to be. Verse 4, he says, But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. Paul and crew didn't bend the truth or water down the gospel or the doctrine of hell to make it more palatable to people. Principle number three, always hold fast to the truth, and your primary focus is to please God, not people. Proverbs 27.6 says this, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of the the enemy are deceitful. The person who's, who's telling you nice things about yourself isn't always the person who's your friend. It's sometimes the person who really cuts to the heart and tells you the truth. That's the person that's faithful. Those are the faithful wounds of a friend. Don't surround yourself with people who just tell you what you want to hear. 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 5. uh, Paul tells Timothy that people will come with itching ears, and they will come to heap up teachers for themselves. They want to hear what they want to hear, not that their ears are literally itching, but that they... And you see today, people go from church to church to church looking for a church to approve of their lifestyle. 
well, let's go to the Unitarian Church because they don't talk about hell. They don't talk about sins. It's very nice to come and listen to, but it's a watered-down gospel. Love is keeping someone from destroying their lives. It's not lying to them to make them feel better. True love is disciplining and set boundaries for your children instead of being their pals from an early age and letting them do whatever they want. I don't like to discipline my son because he takes it pretty hard, even if I correct him with my voice. He looks at me and he tells his mother, I want daddy to leave the house. Or he says all these silly little childhood things. And it kind of makes me feel bad. You know, he goes to the bus at, at 1230, goes off to school, and he won't, won't speak to me. But usually by 4 o'clock when he comes back, he's forgotten and he's forgiven me. But I can't allow my son to go his way and destroy himself. Being a police officer, if I could take off this hat and put another one on, I deal constantly with parents call me. My son is 15. He's 16. I don't know what to do. Help. You know, they, they've, people have bought into the lie of trying to be buddies with your kids. And then as they get older, there's just no boundaries, and they get into a lot of trouble. True love is not pacifying the addict, enabling the person to destroy themselves. I went on a call once where uh, a neighbor came, a person came to a neighbor's house and committed a, a crime, and then he went back home. And the woman, before calling the police, called the person's parents who lived with him, who were out for the evening. And when I came and I took the information, she said, oh, the parents are on the line. So I take the phone and they said, pretend his name is Larry. They said, Larry has a problem. Larry has problems. And Larry is, is like a child. And Larry this and Larry that. And Larry's home. So I'm thinking, okay, he's a juvenile. I can't question him because his laws, you know, the parents have to be home. I said, how old is Larry? He's 41 years old. <laughs> so I said, I don't need your permission to talk to Larry. And I went and I spoke to Larry completely cognizant, acted and spoke like an adult, but he had a drinking problem. And they just enabled him. They let him stay there. They didn't, he didn't have to get a job. He, can, he could drink and get drunk, and now he's committing crimes to his neighbor. So these people are not helping Larry, right? True love is giving the gospel at the risk of losing a friend. And you will lose friends. I lost friends. Uh, if you truly are behaving as a Christian, you're going to lose friends. That's part of the cost. People are not going to want to hear it. They're in a state of rebellion. But true love is not, you know, hey, it's okay. You believe, I believe. And then when the judgment comes and they're looking at you like, why didn't you tell me? Imagine seeing that from your friend. We've been friends for 20 years. Why didn't you tell me? Now look where I am. Of course, God can work all things out for good. And God can use somebody else if we fail. But we don't want to be put in that position. Verse 5 says, for neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is witness. God is witness. Paul is saying, look, I'm, I'm laying all this down. You know me, you, and God sees. Kind of reminds me of when I get up in the morning, I usually get up about half an hour before my wife gets up because I work the afternoon shift. And I'm, usually we have a narrow hallway that leads to the kitchen, and we have five cats and every so often, one of the cats, because there's five of them, the odds are great that someone's going to throw up on the rug. So I'll end up, I'll be in the kitchen, and my wife gets up, and she comes, and she goes, did you see the puke on the rug? No, honey, I didn't. God is your witness? Oh, now I can't lie. Yes, I saw the puke on the rug. I'm sorry I didn't clean it up. <laughs> I clean it up half the times, but if I'm truthful with myself, I'm thinking, of course, in my mind, you wanted the five cats. Why do I have to clean up the puke? But... 
But God is witness. Paul is saying, between me, you, and God, he sees. This is the truth that I'm laying down for you. Principle number four, beware of flattery, giving or receiving. Proverbs 26:28. actually, I was looking up flattery in the concordance, and I, I don't think I, well, I know I read this proverb, but I, I didn't start or put a little note next to it. This is a good proverb, Proverbs 26:28. It says, a lying tongue hates those who are crushed by it, and the flattering mouth works ruin. That's pretty heavy stuff. Flattery and lies go together. I believe that flattery and lies were used right in the beginning to produce the first sin. Adam and Eve is the serpent. Eve, over here, the serpent. Come here, I got something for you. Hey, Eve, you're a really nice lady and you're very smart. You know, did God really say that you shouldn't eat of that fruit? I mean, you're really something special. I mean, he wants you to be like him. Open up your eyes, see good and evil. Um, Again, to procure the very first sin, flattery and lies were used. Of course, I don't know if that's how it went, but, you know, I'm giving you an example. But flattery is a deceitful way to get something from someone, whether immaterial or material. Smooth words can be used for you to agree with a certain point of view. A man of your intelligence and character and knowledge of the Bible would surely agree that my way is the right way. Wow, I am pretty smart. I do know the Bible, and I'm pretty humble, too. Yeah, you know what? You could be right about that point. People use those smooth words and that flattery to get you to come to their side. And people will, will they'll fall right into that trap. Uh, but anyway, the, a good point about all that is, look, compliments are good, and a well-placed compliment should be used. But there's a big difference between a compliment and flattery. You, can, you know the difference. Verse 6, he says, Nor do we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. Paul and crew had a reputation. Paul had a title that preceded him. But they didn't use it to their advantage. Principle number five, beware of pride. I'm going to read for you Proverbs 16, 18 through 19. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. It's pretty heavy stuff there. There's a cause and relational effect. There's a cause and effect relation between pride in the ministry and disconnection with people. As the ego of those in the ministry goes up, the people will feel isolated. Doesn't that sound like a proverb? As the ego of those in ministry goes up, the people people will feel isolated. And that's true. I believe pride is a basis for all sins. Look at adultery. People have all the excuses for why they go outside the marriage. Well, you know, my spouse is just not meeting my needs. Uh, I'm I'm a special person, and, uh, you know, somebody's got to meet my needs, and it's certainly not happening here. I deserve better. It's pride. Think about stealing. Well, uh, I really deserve to have that, and that person has that position. That person has that nice car. I'm just as good, if not better. I should have that. So pride really is a basis for all sins. And in the Proverbs, we know in many places God hates God hates pride. Verse 7. Can you erase that, Josh, from the CD so Pete doesn't hear it? (laughs) Verse 7. But we were gentle among you just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. Not just a mother, but a nursing mother. I believe that when Paul started writing, the Holy Spirit guided him big time. And what's the difference between a mother and a nursing mother? Not that one's better than the other. It's a different form of care. 
I remember that when we had our son, Josiah, my wife was pregnant. We prayed. We didn't know what to do. We were new parents. Well, what do we do now? Well, maybe we should, she should have the baby first, then we'll worry about that, take one step at a time. But uh, as soon as the baby was born, my wife's maternal instincts that God gave her kicked right in. She cherished him. She met all his needs with gentleness. She was a, she's a great mother. He was born in the late September. Uh, he was born in the fall, just before the winter. When we lived in East Brunswick, we had our, our home had hardwood floors, and they were very cold in the winter. But I remember my wife would check his breathing, his position, the noises that he made. She was attuned to everything about my son. And I remember many a nights that my wife would take the blanket off the bed and go into his room and put it on the floor next to his crib, and she'd lay on the floor and listen to him. And I'm talking many a nights. My response was, hey, don't worry about it. It's in the Lord's hands. I didn't get a good uh, response from that, but that's typical guy response. But my wife, she cherished him. She was gentle with him. And there's an, there's an example of what a nursing mother and how a nursing mother treats her children. Principle number six, we need to set high standards regarding meeting the needs of people in ministry. And that's a tough act to follow if you really think about a, a nursing mother. But we should set high standards for ministry. Verse 8, so affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. Principle 7 is an equation, and you can't have one without the other. The gospel of God plus our own lives. Well, what do you mean I have to give my life? Well, Jesus said those who give their lives will retain it. Those who try to hold on to their lives will lose it. We don't want to just teach, and teach the word in a sterile matter, manner. I'm going to read for you Mark 10, 20 through 22. 10 through, all right, let me try that again. Mark 10, 20 through 22. This is the rich young ruler. So the rich young ruler is going to Jesus, and he wants to know how to inherit, inherit eternal life, and Jesus tells him. He says, you know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these I have observed from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross, and follow me. But he was sad at this word and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. Jesus didn't say, Hey, rich boy, get rid of all your toys and then come follow me and you'll be fine. He looked at him, and he loved him. And I believe when the rich young ruler went away and he was sad because he couldn't do these things, I believe there was two people that were sad that day, and one of them was the Lord, because he loved that man. He gave, Jesus gave his heart to everyone he taught. He gave his heart and soul into everything he did. You know, I, I see a lot of these Jesus, you've seen a lot of Jesus, when you're a new Christian, you have to see all the Jesus movies, right? And a lot of these movies, Jesus is like, Blessed are the peacemakers. He's like so serious all the time. He's like, doesn't seem like much of a fun guy, like a wet blanket. But I don't really believe that's the way Jesus was. Actually, one, one actor, the name starts, last name starts with an M, uh, Marsh, Marciano, something out of the boxer. But he, he did a, a, he did Jesus and he did it in a different manner. He did it in a more jovial manner. This was a Jesus who hugged people and loved people. And I think that's the way Jesus was. He loved people. He wanted to be around people. And I don't, I don't believe a lot of the representations of him are, are accurate. But people want to be loved. 
As a police officer, I've dealt with people who've killed people. I've dealt with people who are part of outlaw biker gangs members. And, you know, most of the times if I have to deal with these people, I'm, I have to know quickly where my gun is. But when I get to know them, I get to know them. And one, of, one guy I know uh, very well, actually a few of them. And you know what? In a strange way, they want to be loved, too. They join a gang. Oh, they're, they're, they murder and they shoot people and stuff. But they protect each other, like, with their own lives. It's like a family in a strange way. It's a dysfunctional family. But these people just want to be loved. They want to be part of something. They want to be part of a family. No matter how tough people are, they want to belong. Verse 9. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God. Paul and, and crew labored and toiled not only spiritually but physically. They didn't want to be a financial burden to that infant church of Thess Thess Thessalonica. Principle number eight. This is a good guideline for the mission field. Vacation and ministry work should be separate. Example. My sister is a missionary to Mexico, and actually she, found her, she met her husband down there, boyfriend, and then they got married, which was a really neat blessing. But she's been down there for about two to three years now. My sister didn't go there and say, hey, where's the electricity? Hey, where's the running water? I'm a missionary. You know, somebody call the exterminator. There's big bugs in my room. You know, she, she didn't do all that. She didn't say, hey, why can't these people accommodate me? I'm, a, I'm an Italian princess from New Jersey. What's going on here? She, she didn't do that. She loved these people. I'm very proud of my sister because you know, forget about knowing what a tape measure was or a hammer. She builds houses now. She builds schools. She teaches. Uh, she's learned the language. She's even learned the Triki language, which is an indigenous people of the mountains. So she just loves those people. And they know that. And she labored alongside of them. She didn't come there to be served but to serve. Verse 10. You are witnesses in God also how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. Principle number nine, behavior is important, setting a good example. It wasn't like the Thessalonians observed Paul and crew and came to the conclusion like, hey, look at these guys. Their message sounds good, but they're behaving like a bunch of drunken sailors. Look, Timothy's got a lampshade on his head over there. I mean, they, they didn't do that. Paul and crew came down there and they had good behavior. Uh, on the other hand, sanctimonious or pharisaical behavior is also just as offensive. People will go out of their way to tell you how holy and pious they are, and usually they can't relate to people. It's like, I, I never drink, smoke, do drugs, tell a joke, laugh at a joke, watch TV, drive over 55 miles an hour, burp, pass gas, smile, raise my voice, or think bad thoughts. Now, how can I relate to your problem? And it doesn't work like that. The, uh, the Carnegie Institute i just read a little something here. It says, the Carnegie Founda Foundation discovered that to be successful on the job, relational skills are far more important than knowledge. Its research found that only 15% of a person's success is determined by job knowledge and technical skills. 85% is determined by an individual's attitude and, and ability to relate to other people. So we have to be able to have good behavior, but we also have to be real to people. Uh, people are going to clam up if we come up with, with an, a facade of, of uh, perfection. So, and even if you, people think that they can't relate to people, if they trust in the Lord and they pray, they will. If you love people, you'll automatically, over time, be able to relate to them. Verse 11. He says, As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children. 
they move from behaving as a, mer- a nursing mother and they transition it to behaving as a father. Principle number 10, be sensitive to and respond to the transition between somebody who's a baby Christian or a, a new believer and matures into a maturing Christian. I think about my son. As a baby, I, would tr- I treated him a certain way. As he became a little boy, I treated him differently. As he grew, and some of those needs didn't need to be met anymore, and he transitioned to different stages. But I responded accordingly with encouragement, exhortation, and demands at some point to help him grow in his character. My favorite line, and I use it a million times, is you can do it, whether it's riding a bicycle or whether it's reading, writing, playing a game that involves strategy. As a lot of times I make demands, I don't let him give up. It's like, hey, son, it's a tough world out there. They'll eat you alive. You better learn and just do this, this simple stuff here. But um, I'm there to coach him. I'm right, right by his side to coach him. Uh, Calvary's motto is win, build, and send. And the building part is discipleship. It's not just win. It doesn't end there. Bringing people to the Lord, bringing people to the Lord. That's awesome. The Bible says that the the angels rejoice in heaven. But discipleship has to be part of the equation. Win a person to Christ, come alongside of them, and teach them as they start to grow, as the fiery darts of the devil start coming their way. Teach them to step out in faith. Teach them to trust in the Lord through those trials and tribulations. Okay, teach them all these things and learn how to share their faith. Verse 12, he says that you would have a walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Principle number 11, store up treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy and thieves don't break in and steal. This is basically a summation of verses 1 through 11. There's nothing more joyous than to see someone that you led to Christ or you discipled or both be saved from their sins in hell, grow in the Lord, and affect other people for Jesus. Like he said, and also to have a walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Contextually, Paul, I believe, used these to prove a point to the Thessalonians and to make his point afterwards from that to springboard. However, in doing that, he gave us with these great 11 principles of ministry. So that's what it's all about. Jesus died for our sins. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. There's a lot of whosoever's out there. And the Lord brought us here to South Brunswick for a reason, to this area, to minister to people.